You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, conversations with the icons of our time. Both he and Gorbachev felt that both countries won the Cold War in that they liberated themselves from the arms race, from the threats, and from the cost of it. The former U.S. Ambassador to the Soviet Union, Jack Matlock. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. More than three decades after the end of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, many people today fear a resurgence and maybe a new Cold War brewing between the U.S. and Russia. So it's important to know how the first Cold War ended. Today we'll go back some 20 years to a conversation with the former United States ambassador to the Soviet Union, longtime career diplomat Jack Matlock. His 2004 book was called Reagan and Gorbachev, How the Cold War Ended. As a top career diplomat, Matlock was right at the center of the U.S.-Soviet relationship for everything from the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 to the breakup of the Soviet Union nearly three decades later. His book was packed with the kind of details and insights that only an insider could have. So here now, from 2004... Ambassador Jack Matlock. We need to perhaps make the distinction between the end of the Cold War and the downfall of the Soviet Union. These are separate events, are they not? Absolutely, and this is one of the points I wanted to bring out in the book. You know, they happen so close together. Uh, The end of the Cold War, the end of communist rule in the Soviet Union, and then the end of the Soviet Union. Many people think they were all one event. Three events. And different people bear different responsibility for each of them. It was never Ronald Reagan's intention to break up the Soviet Union, was it? That is correct. No, he wanted to change their behavior. He wanted to encourage them to be more democratic. And he thought that a democratic Soviet Union would not threaten other people or us. Uh, But he didn't set out to uh, abolish communism. He didn't like communism. But that was their business. Uh, He did want to encourage reform. And he thought they could change. Uh, but most of all, you know, he had this feeling that people don't make wars. Governments do. Let's deal with the issues to keep from getting a war. And let's get rid of these horrible nuclear weapons. He really detested them. That was his motivation. He didn't start out to bring down the Soviet Union. Well, his, his vision was not nation versus nation. It was ideology versus ideology. Absolutely. And he says in his memoirs, you know, that uh, the, the Cold War ended uh, because democracy and freedom triumphed over a totalitarian system. It was not the victory of one country over another. And also, both he and Gorbachev felt that both countries won the Cold War in that they liberated themselves from the arms race, from the threats, and from the cost of it, which was to the benefit of both countries and the rest of the world. It is, to use that cliche, Uh, a win-win situation. he never thought, yeah, he never thought of it as a victory of Mm -hmm. the United States over, certainly not over Russia, because Russia was Mm -hmm. only part of the Soviet Union, but even over the Soviet Union, because if they could have reformed, If they could have become more of a democratic country and stayed together, he would have been very happy with that. It it really, the portrait of Ronald Reagan that emerges in this book is of a very, a much more 
um, progressive thinking, much sharper and much more focused thinker than many in the public give him credit for being in this whole event. Well, I found him that way. It's true that he would only f he focused on a few big issues, mm -hmm. and he focused on those intensively. He did leave most of the details to other people, and uh, a lot of people would say, well, that he doesn't really know very much. You know, I think he knew the big things, and what's more, I think he knew what he didn't know. And he knew what questions to ask, and he didn't mind being corrected when he was wrong. And in this, he was different from many other presidents. Could all those things have been said about Mikhail Gorbachev as well? I think Gorbachev was more arrogant in his approach. He dealt with his own people in a quite different way. Well, he had to uh, under the kind to, of government. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. And he was, he was not quite as open about what he was driving at, and he couldn't have been or they would have removed mm -hmm. him. Uh, so he was a totalitarian, almost dictator, not totally, because uh, he had to have the Politburo uh, to get along with him, but he was uh, sort of much more an unchallenged leader than any American president can be who has to depend upon Congress. Congress has to depend upon uh, the votes uh, and his own popularity with the people. But uh, so Gorbachev started out with a rather different personality. He would talk down to his own people. He uh, probably talked more than he listened. Uh, but he knew something that most of the, his other colleagues didn't understand, and that was the country was in real problems and it had to change. And as he and his foreign minister would say before they uh, got power, uh, when they were just regional party, Communist Party officials, uh, this country can't go on like this. They really felt that something had to change. They were a younger generation than the leaders that preceded mm -hmm. them. And yet he had to dissimulate until he was at the very top and had the sort of control that he could carry these out. So in those respects, he was quite different from Reagan. What was that comment that Reagan famously made about he'd love to meet with the Soviet leaders, but they kept dying on him? Or? Yeah, that's right. You know, he was, I think, uh, it was in the campaign in 84 when <laughs> Fritz Mondale made, uh, you know, he hadn't made a, uh, he hadn't had a meeting. Actually, he had been trying to arrange them. Mm -hmm. And they did keep dying on him. And uh, from, you know, Brezhnev in his last years, uh, was, uh, uh, well, uh, they would have never let him mm -hmm. meet in his last couple of years because he could no longer really mm -hmm. even keep a normal count conversation going. Uh, then Andropov had uh, severe nephritis, you know, a kidney infection, uh, was bedridden most of the time. And then Chernyenko, mm -hmm. even at his prime, uh, wouldn't have had the capacity to to be a very mm -hmm. good, uh, he was a file clerk in, in effect, mm -hmm. but a, a friend of Brezhnev's and therefore, uh, as a crony, he was brought in by Brezhnev, and and they were all sick. And so it wasn't until Gorbachev that he really had an interlocutor. But what a stroke of, I don't know if you call it luck, if you call it fate, if you call it the intervention of a higher power, that you have two leaders of the two, at that point, superpowers, who are of like mind, coming to office at the same time, both willing to set aside all these years of rancor and get together and actually do something. What a remarkable period of time this is. Well, it was. Of course, it didn't start spontaneously True. quite that way. <laughs> it took about two and a half years mm -hmm. for them to get on the same wavelength. But they both, I think, worked in a way to get on the same wavelength in a certain sense. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of people maybe ignored at the time, uh, those of us who were watching the process closely understood it, as different as the two were, and they were quite different personalities, they had one thing in common. They both had very strong, stable marriages with wives whom they consulted. 
And in, certainly in Nancy Reagan's case, she wanted her husband to go down as the president of peace. And those that she felt were being too confrontational, feeding him too much negative rhetoric, she would sort of see that, well, they didn't last that long in uh, the administration for the most part. I don't think, you know, she redlined policies or anything like that. But and in working also with uh, the Russians, when Gromyko came to the White House in uh, 1984, uh, and uh, uh, he told her just before lunch, we were all having either wine or juice before lunch, and he, he told Mrs. Reagan, I hope you will whisper in your husband's ear every night, peace, peace. And she said, I will, and I'll also do it for you. And she stood up on her tiptoes. He was fairly tall and whispered in his ear, peace, peace. <laughs> and I was having to be standing nearby. And at first he looked incredulous, and then he began to smile. And he would tell this story after that, uh, uh, for months after that. Uh, so uh, both wives were very influential and have a real role here. Well, in fact, you allude at one point in the chapter on the Reykjavik summit yes. to the belief by some people that if the wives had been there, in, and given their respective husbands maybe the strength to go on another day or two, might it have had a different outcome than it did? It might have. I, uh, I'm i not sure because I think that uh, Gorbachev was still trying to kill SDI, and although his proposal probably wouldn't have, that's the Strategic Defense mm -hmm. Initiative. Many people call it Star Wars, which I think is a misnomer and I don't use it. Uh, but I think he was determined to kill it. I, uh, and, uh, Reagan was not going to let him do that. So, uh, but at the time, uh, one of the reasons that Reagan didn't want to, uh, stay longer, well, I'm sure, was that, uh, Nancy wasn't there. And he had probably said, uh, that, you know, I'm going to be home Sunday evening for dinner. And he really <laughs> wanted to meet that commitment. Uh, and, uh, one person raised the issue with him. And uh, in the afternoon, maybe you should stay over another day. And his face fell, and he uttered an expletive, which he rarely <laughs> would do. And we didn't have the heart to press the issue, and uh, so uh, it broke up. Uh, so in retrospect, I wouldn't say that things necessarily would have been differently, but they may well have stayed another day. Mm -hmm. And maybe something somewhat different would have been worked out. After this short break, Jack Matlock talks about the small but very crucial role he played in the breakup of the Soviet Union. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 2004 conversation with Jack Matlock. That's also part of the point that you make in this book, isn't it? Is that there were fits and starts. There were there was great progress, then you'd fall back a bit, and somebody yes. would drop the ball, somebody else would pick up the ball. Absolutely. No, there were many steps backwards. Mm -hmm. uh, while this went on, it wasn't an easy or even process at all. And uh, the remarkable thing was that it uh, that it happened at all. And I think your earlier comment that uh, the remarkable thing that it did take both of them and I, uh, in office at the same time. Uh, to get this done, I can't think of anybody else who plausibly could have been in office instead, uh, any other combination that could have made it happen. Because you had to not only find the right chemistry to do these things and the right understanding and the right trust, that is, to come to these agreements and understand it, you also had to be able to sell it at home. Mm -hmm. And Gorbachev could, in effect, force it at home up to a point. Reagan had to 
convince people. And, you know, you could have had a president who signed the same agreement, but if he had been a Democrat, probably mm-hmm. the Senate would have blocked it. I mean, I say this with no disrespect, but mm-hmm. uh, Reagan did come from the position, and this is something Gorbachev came to appreciate, that he couldn't really be outflanked from the right. Therefore, you make a deal with him, it's going to stick. And that meant he would go a little further, because, you know, they had signed a treaty with uh, Carter, mm-hmm. and it didn't get through the Senate. Now, the reason was their invasion of Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but they never really recognized that. They blamed Carter and said, well, we don't want to deal with another weak American president. And, of course, they didn't particularly like Reagan when he came in because they were told he's a hardliner and he's from the extreme right wing and uh, he'll never you know, negotiate anything with you, which was the wrong estimate. But w- they did understand when he began negotiating, now, this is a man, if he signs on that line, he can deliver. And that was an important part of his strength. I, I guess it would be equally inaccurate to either say Ronald Reagan was solely responsible for the end of the Cold War or at the other end of the spectrum to say he had nothing to do with it. It would have ended anyway. Both of those I, statements are equally inaccurate. I think are they, they not? are. I think they absolutely are. I think that uh, uh, it's wrong to say, you know, Ronald Reagan ended the Cold War or brought the Soviet Union down. Uh, that's uh, uh, the latter, I think, is absolutely incorrect. The mm-hmm. other is that without his programs and his background and so on, other American presidents probably couldn't have ended it, but he couldn't have ended it if he hadn't had Gorbachev as a partner. Mm-hmm. So you got to really give credit to both of them. What a remarkable time for you to be have, to have a front row seat at all. As mo- most of these uh, pictures that you have in the, inside the book, in one place or another in that picture is you. Well, I tried to find some that I was not in <laughs> because I wanted to concentrate on Reagan and Gorbachev. But it was it it was the opportunity of a lifetime. I had. I had had an interest in Russia from the time, you know, I was in college. I'd specialized in Soviet studies and then Russian literature, of all things, and had decided that I wanted to go in the foreign service uh, because that would give me a chance to actually live in Russia as a diplomat at a time when, at that time, they didn't have tourists or students Mm -hmm. or others there. And uh, uh, then to have my specialty, then for these things to come to fruition, uh, uh, later uh, was a great opportunity. But I think you make the point in the book also that, as, as we've talked about, Reagan and Gorbachev were, were great men who did great things, but they couldn't have done it without George Schultz, Edward Shevardnadze, and Absolutely. people like Jack Matlock. I mean, you talk about, I will give you the credit that you may not talk about yourself for that speech you gave in Latvia, 1986, was it? Yes. That, uh-huh. that in, in whatever small way sparked the idea that maybe they should strive for their independence from the Soviet Union. Well, certainly uh, uh, people like uh, George Shultz, who was our Secretary of State, and Edward Shevardnadze, their foreign minister, were absolutely essential for this process. Uh, they, uh, they, they helped form the issues. They helped push their presidents when they needed a little push, and they absorbed a lot of the heat mm-hmm. uh, politically. Uh, now, uh, you know, I, I was privileged to be able to, to help them and sort of be part of the team. The speech in Latvia you refer to, yes, I, you know, it's one of these things that it was very controversial when I went there because we didn't recognize the Baltic states mm-hmm. as part of the Soviet Union. And some people, including some television commentators here, uh, actually before I went, said, here's this White House official who's going off to Soviet Latvia and violating our non-recognition <laughs> agreement, which is, wasn't true. But I went there because they had promised that uh, these speeches would be televised. 
And I went there and I told the Latvians and along with them, the Estonians and Lithuanians, mm -hmm. we don't recognize you as legally part of the Soviet Union. They didn't know that. They had kept this out. Oh. And it was suddenly on television. And I even said a few words in Latvian. Uh, and I got back to the hotel in Riga that evening and, and they would crowd around me. Is it true you said something in Latvia? And I said, yes, then you know we're not Russian. Oh, yes, I know. And is it really true they would ask, you know, that you don't recognize this as part of the Soviet Union? I said, yes, that's been our policy all along. Mm -hmm. And you could say it was a real revelation uh, to them. And later, some of their National Front movements said that's when we got started thinking seriously about regaining our independence. How proud that must make you feel. Well, it was a great opportunity. And... Uh, uh, I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for them because this was a message that we had been trying to get out. The mm -hmm. Baltic states in particular had been a great interest of mine. I had friends who were graduate students who were refugees from that area. Uh, and, uh, and I felt very strongly on this issue. And there were times in the U.S. government that people would say, ah, you know, they're never going to give it up. Now let's, Let's stop this foolish non-recognition policy. And I was one who uh, would never, uh, I said, hey, I'll never agree to that. And I'll argue, you know, and, and very strongly against it. And nobody wanted to make a big issue. So that was usually enough to put it to rest. But uh, the fact was, it was one that I, I did feel very strongly on. And I'm very happy that I had the opportunity to, to put in a word at what looked like the right time or turned out to be the right time. I did add in the epilogue one thought that we haven't really made the most of mm -hmm. the heritage. I think we should have moved much more rapidly in the 90s to end a lot of the Cold War activities and concentrate more on terrorism, which was a real threat. And I think that even though intellectually we may have understood the Cold War was over, mm -hmm. the bureaucracy continued to operate as if it was still on. It's hard to turn the Queen Mary around. And, uh, <laughs> that's right. And I, I, I do say that's not a theme of the book, but uh, one of the conclusions I do draw from it is that uh, we have to be able to recognize the changed world when it occurs and adjust to it and not just keep doing the same old things. But, and without leadership, the bureaucracy will always do the same old things. Jack Matlock is 94 now, and he lives in New Jersey. Now, you can get a copy of Reagan and Gorbachev, How the Cold War Ended by Jack Matlock by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, don't miss my 1993 interview with Jack Matlock's former boss, Secretary of State George Shultz. The big thing about the Reagan administration was that uh, the world was transformed during the time we were in office. The Cold War basically ended. And my 2001 conversation with the son of the man who once promised to bury the United States, Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei Khrushchev. Both of them, Kennedy and Khrushchev. My father was prepared to discussion with the president. His goal, to protect the Cuba, not start the war. And the Kennedy have to reach his goal, how he can take these missiles out. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she got her start on a soap opera when she was just 12. Now she's a very popular actress, but also a very popular and well-known poet and a very talented one. My 2009 interview with actress and poet 
Amber Tamblin. Getting a poem published in the New Yorker, that's a huge feat. That to me, if I had got a poem in the New Yorker, that would be bigger to me than if I was nominated for an Academy Award. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.